Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLF Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to hear more about Walter's music, Davine Dial, thank you very much for managing WPVMFM. We really appreciate your con- your contribution to community radio. If any of you listening would like to know more about WPVMFM, the website is WPVMFM.org. You can go there and find out all kinds of things about what we do in the Asheville area, as well as around the world from the little radio station there on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. And if you'd like to make a donation, the donation button is above the top of the fold. So when you go to WPVMFM.org, you'll see all of that information right there before you. If you would like to know more about the idea of where Twice Five Miles Radio comes from, the concept of Twice Five Miles, and how far you can go when you go Twice Five Miles, you'll find some other projects I'm working on on the website, twice5miles.com. I will tell you this, the name Twice Five Miles comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, Nave at jamesnave.com. would love to hear your story, what's happening in your field. Report from that field and I'll be happy to receive your email and respond right back to it. As you know, if you've been listening to this show, and I hope you have, and if you're just now tuning in for the first time, welcome. I love to bring people onto the show. Sometimes I know them well. Other times I've just met them. And today my guest is someone I met about a month or so ago, maybe two months ago, Maya Christabel. I thought Maya Christabel was a great name for an author. As it turns out, Maya is a writer and other things as well. So, Maya Christabel, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, Nave, for asking me to come. Chance meetings turn out to be pretty wonderful over time. They do indeed. And when we spoke, you gave me a little bit of a sense of where you're coming from. And one of the things that caught my attention right away was how involved you were with all these projects that you've been doing all your life and you are currently doing. And you're a big collaborator as well as a a psychologist, a a filmmaker. You are a writer as well as a ghost writer. So there's lots of territory to cover here. So you talked to me early on in a very collaborative way about how you love to do work with lots and lots of people. So I would like to begin our conversation on the subject of collaboration. Why is that so valuable to you? And why do you think it's something we could all engage in? And if someone's curious about how to collaborate, could you explore a bit about how you see collaboration and how it works? This is great. I mean, you just pull a question like that out of your hat and I get to run by the seat of my pants here. You couldn't have chosen a more, I think, important thing, especially now after COVID, with us experiencing such isolation and separation. I think the idea of connectivity and collaboration is more important to people than ever because we have so many limitations about it. Believe it or not, I think the collaborative passion that I have of working with others towards a common goal is more neurobiological than it is a emotional, spiritual thing. I believe we are pack animals and we not only sociologically need to be bumping shoulders and talking and working and thinking through ideas together and allowing energy to amass from many minds in the moment, right? But I think that our nervous systems really require interfacing with other nervous systems. And when we are cut off from that, people don't thrive very well. When we live in isolation or we live solitary lives or we don't have much family or we're basically not very socially uh, confident and we're sort of separate from everyone, you'll notice that people's health is not as great. Their longevity is not as great. And so when COVID came along, and this does lead to collaboration, when COVID came along and everyone was 
asked to isolate six feet apart, 10 feet apart, put a mask on, which I could talk about masks forever. The very thing we needed to keep very strong in order to resist a new virus was depleting itself because we were so isolated. So the very mandate for COVID became the very thing that weakened our immune systems. And then you add fear in weakening our immune system. So I've been a marriage and family therapist for almost 35, 40 years. And everything is a family system. It's not just one person. The whole system contributes to something that might be needing to be overcome. And so I think every idea needs a system behind it in terms of film, in terms of your poetry. Your poetry is only as powerful as it is because you're interfacing with your audience and your audience is giving and you're giving and they're giving. And then it's just this amazing thing, very unintentionally elevating of our vibrational frequency. Collaboration is healthy. I think it's healthy for a project. I think it's healthy for the people in the project. It also creates accountability. Uh, I'm not a pyramidic hierarchical person that believes that everything is to trickle down from the top. I believe collaboration makes us look at ourselves more deeply, learn how to communicate better. It's just the ticket for a lot of good things, frankly. There's an idea that I've been attracted to called heart math. Mm-hmm. When two people or a group of people get close together, their systems coordinate, calibrate so that they're communicating not only with their voices and their body language, but at their hearts as well, almost an electronic connection. I'm thinking perhaps this separation experience that we're having now collectively, we are no longer able to communicate close up with our hearts. And I'm speaking scientifically here. I'm not speaking metaphysically. I'd love for you to just push a little bit further down the line in terms of how our health balances out and our separation causing that disconnect with our hearts in this time of COVID. The heart is, to me, the new paradigm that we're moving into, understanding the power of it, the power of expressing our hearts. What does that really mean? What is emotional intelligence? I remember when I first saw the documentary done by Foster Gamble called Thrive. He talked about the Taurus, which is a quantum field, and the Taurus is identical in its properties to our heart not to our mind. And so essentially the heart produces the largest electromagnetic field in the entire body. So as a result, you know, we talk meeting of the minds and, you know, you're reading my mind and we have all this stuff about the mind. And in fact, you can't really connect to a person energetically through the mind. But what they talk about is if you and I were to give each other a big hug, We're not talking about the Victorian hug where you're sort of hugging like, you know, with your body way out, the chest isn't touching somebody, nobody's like really hugging. But if you really gave someone a hug and you were heart to heart, you need 30 seconds for the heartbeat to entrain and start beating at the simultaneous heartbeat. So the idea of heart entrainment, I think, is a lot that heart math has to offer. It is a way to boot up your highest amount of heart energy and heart energy is the highest vibration in the body. Mind energy is very low vibrational frequency, but heart is a very high vibrational frequency. And if you look at people who are in more of the alternative medicine fields, they will say, if you can keep your energy field that you emanate at a high vibrational frequency, you are least likely to get disease because disease is a very low vibrational frequency. So interestingly enough, we have COVID come along, everybody's panic stricken, everybody's separated, everybody's got a mask on, and now we have this massive epidemic and we have a pandemic. And you have to wonder in some small way how the ways that we thought we might deal with it might be contributing to the problem because we aren't in training on our hearts. We aren't elevating our emotional body 
to vibrate at a level that keeps us from getting disease. Heart entrainment, I think, is a lost art. I love some of the videos on YouTube. And remember when the guy in New York City just walked out on Wall Street onto the corner and he had a big sign on the saying it said free hugs? The first day, people were like, oh, my God, we can't go near this man, you know, because he's going to be a pervert or something, right? Hugging is perversional. By the end of the week, everyone was standing there to get hugs. Everyone on the street was standing to get hugs. Well, then it started a movement in different cities. People were hugging. And it wasn't just simply an emotional statement. It was a biological requirement for us to be healthy and good humans, basically. Now that we are separated and we are having trouble hugging people, I know that that I don't do that anymore. I see somebody and I wave and I have this little timid child like, hi, how are you? And of course, I'm over here in the corner waving away. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a way that we could stimulate our own hearts without somebody else? Or are we so dependent on being close to people for that synchronistic heart connection that we just have to wait till COVID is over and find the loved ones and hug them again? I think that's a fabulous question. That's a fabulous question. So first of all, if you look at the statistics, dog ownership skyrocketed. Everyone went out and got a dog that didn't have a dog or a cat. They went out and got an animal because we have no limitations on how we interface with animals. And so all my women friends basically went and got puppies, you know. You know, you went to the Humane Society and they were empty. They were empty. They were, it was the first time they had very few dogs. That's one thing is because really what we're talking about in, in many ways, and I'm opening up another whole strand of this conversation, which is we're talking about that love is food. We need to feel loved and hugs are very loving They're very compassionate. They're very kind. They're very sweet. They can be very sexual, but all of it leads to feeling love, feeling appreciated, feeling all those feelings, right? So people go get a dog because dogs are basically the most unconditionally loving beings on the planet. But what I'm learning, and I'm learning it through some of the work that was done 20 years ago, it was Joe Dispenza and Lynn McTaggart talking about creating groups of people with an intention Well, they created these very large intention groups to practice the idea of when we come with a common goal or intention, one limiting crime in Chicago, stopping a war in Sri Lanka, that even though you're all over the world, there still is a neural net of connectivity. So basically, I think what's happening is the forced separation from the logical, physical connection with somebody is forcing us to realize that connection is is an energetic thing as well. We can focus on that person. We can imagine hugging that person. The mind doesn't necessarily know much of the difference between what we see and what we experience. There's lots of research. It's like PTSD people who are far beyond the moment when they were traumatized, but They can replay being bombed in Vietnam, but their body is having the full experience as if they're there. And so I think what can happen is we have to develop going inward, embracing in many ways, energetically, the family that we can't see, people, the patient that's in the hospital that we can't visit, that there is almost a telepathic capacity to raise our frequency, to create the outcome as if we'd had a hug. And there once was a time when people thought telepathy was some pseudoscience. I'm thinking again of the dogs. Everybody's heard these tales and stories. The dog is dropped off somewhere three, 400 miles away from home. And the dog two years later shows back up at the doorstep, mm-hmm. happy to see the folks it had mm-hmm. lost. I wonder if that dog that shows up on the doorstep was able to connect with that energetic communication field that spreads around the world. And I know that I'm thinking of some of the animals that I see here in Taos, New Mexico. I don't see that many, but the deer walks by every now and then, or a fair number of crows and ravens and other kinds of birds, magpies. Maybe it's my imagination, but sometimes I look at the birds close up, the crow in the tree, and think, 
well, I can communicate with this bird. And I maybe have always known that, but I'm a little more in tune now than I once was. Perhaps that energetic field is more and more available to us as we become more separated from what we once knew and have to recalibrate ourselves in right. more personal individual directions. The word you use recalibration is really very indicative of what we're talking about in terms of the electromagnetic field of the heart. My belief is not very Darwinian. Darwin believed that evolution happens gradually over time. Okay. And there's a lot of people that believe that the only time we evolve is through some cataclysmic crisis. And so I believe we've had a cataclysmic crisis with COVID. We've now had to adopt mandates and behaviors that are just antithetical to human pack mentality, family mentality. And so that crisis elevates the need to think out of the box, which we wouldn't have maybe done before. We wouldn't have thought, well, maybe I can telepathically send love to my daughter who's on the East Coast. I would just get on a plane or, you know, I do something different. But without those options, I have to dig a little deeper for, I think, capacities that have always been there and that we just have not been encouraged to develop in a mass sort of way. If we look at why we're so fascinated with porpoise and dolphin and whale, and we just say it's sonar, it's not just sonar. They have a nonverbal communication ability. It's almost like the motherboard of the dolphin group. We have the ability to create that with people as well and not necessarily be in everyone's physical presence. And cats are highly intuitive. Dogs are just differently intuitive. You're connecting, but you're not saying a word, really. You're just connecting. Every time you rub fur, you're creating a kind of electrical charge. Every time you rub fur, it's tingly to the cat. Now the cat's rubbing up against you just a little bit more. And you guys are having a relationship without saying a whole lot of anything. Dogs are the same way. They want their head in your lap. They want to be next to you. They want to be up in bed with you. There's a reason. It's not just because they love us. We feel better by being connected in that way. And it is a challenge for us with COVID because I think that COVID is going to create a new normal for us. I think that this is a normal that we should not go silently into the night about because it is a ruthless destruction of the infrastructure of who we are as humans to keep us segregated like this. But masks, if you think about keeping people from really seeing, I mean, you can speak with your eyes, but people are used to speaking with a smile, not a smile, a frown, you know, whatever. They've cut us off from, from facial recognition. We are in crisis in here, whether we know it or not, because we're cut off from the stuff of connectivity that is just normal. It's just the way we've been as humans forever. I think it's a very, very big deal. As you ask about collaboration, I'm only collaborating right now on Zoom. At least you can see a face, right? You can see a smile. You don't have to wear the mask. You can hear the tone of voice but no, I'm not getting that hug. One of my groups, a film company of all millennials, which I totally love, is we make sure that we listen to music together. We play music. A lot of them are writers of music. They come in and they bring a guitar or whatever, because somehow music is a pathway of connectivity. It always has been. Uh, but we at least have added in music as how we meet together as a group every week. And it's going to take a lot of creativity to figure out outside the box of what we're told we need to do, how to keep ourselves healthy and connected and collaborative. Yeah, I'm thinking um, about the idea of wearing a mask. And I, I have a couple of nice masks that were made locally here in Taos. Mm -hmm. And I am thinking about your comments around evolution and how Darwin has the idea of evolution as a slow process, which indeed it is. I think there may be many kinds of evolutionary prompts that exist mm -hmm. side by side. Mm -hmm. The earth slowly evolving to create the Grand Canyon mm -hmm. or COVID-19 coming along and quickly evolving us into different kinds of awareness. Mm -hmm. The mask for me 
is a lovely fashion statement. I, I've come to really enjoy the fashion statements that seem to be appearing, the way people approach it. I was at the local grocery store the other day, and yesterday, in fact, and you know, there are the characters down there that look like they came out of Mad Max, all draped. The only thing you can see is the slit of the, the shiny eyes. And then there's some very fashionable mask. And, and then there's sort of the industrial mask you would find in the drugstore. Mm-hmm. And, and on it goes. But the, the thing that I like about the mask, and the reason why it's a good tool for me, is because it reminds me to keep my distance. And it reminds me to stay out of crowds because I don't particularly like to wear it. So I put it on and I'm fine with it. And I kind of pretend like I'm a mysterious character walking around nobody can recognize. So I like that anonymity. But it also reminds me to not stay very long, move away and stay at a distance. And for me, that's a good prompt. I go to town, I do my grocery shopping, I go to the post once once a week and the rest of the time I keep my distance. And I like the mask for that reason, but I think we're going to look back upon this time of the mask as a very interesting time of identity. Who am I when I have my mask on? Am I the same person? Do I need to project my public persona? Do I need to have my face Mm -hmm. all shiny? Is that necessary? And we might find our ability to read the eyes will grow. I'm doing a lot of my communication with eyes, and that ability is getting better. Funny enough, I can recognize characters all wrapped up just by their eyes. I go, oh, there's there's Jacob over there. I, I recognize him. That's my take on the mask. And I don't know, eventually we'll probably stop wearing them, but I'm definitely a fan of the mask as a as a fashion statement Mm -hmm. and a tool to remind me that I need to keep my distance and eventually all will be well. You've just brought up the great opportunity is that people at least have the chance with all of these new rules and regs and the situation in the world um, to be reflective. You know, not everybody will reflect on what you just said. They won't think, oh, is the mask a metaphor? And, you know, what does this mean about how I look at someone else? I would like to believe that everybody has taken this time as an opportunity to go inward and say, how does this feel? What does it mean to be wearing a mask? Because it's such valuable inner reflection. Not everybody is doing that. Here in Colorado, which is really interesting, we just downgraded a couple of weeks ago to orange. Now, we had already created a fourth level, which was purple. So purple was the highest, most dangerous COVID time. Then it was red, then it was orange, then it's yellow. Well, we just downgraded to yellow, which meant restaurants opened for indoor seating. Our theaters opened. You know, they have the thing. You sit so many seats apart and all that. But when you go in, you wear your mask and you go in. And then as soon as you sit at your table, you take off your mask. Restaurant eating has skyrocketed because it's the place where you can go sit with four other people and see their face. So they're making lots of money because we are isolated in so many other ways. Like we're wearing it at the grocery store. We're wearing it when we're pumping gas. But we can go eat and have those moments with four people at a table with your mask off, even though you can't know who your waiter is. And so we're all just doing our best to to sort of figure it out. I think we're going to find more and more people trying to create ways to connect without the mask, without COVID restrictions. My daughters are wedding photographers, and basically the only thing they have been able to do for the last year are people who have been small groups outdoors, not indoors. So everything has new possibilities, but um, it is quite, it is a very self-reflective time, I think. Well, I I certainly agree with you. And speaking of self-reflection, I'd like to pause for just a moment and identify the station and say you're listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. Always airing first on WPVMLF Asheville 103.7, streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org. If you would like to know more about the idea of where Twice Five Miles Radio comes from, the concept of Twice Five Miles, 
and how far you can go when you go twice five miles. You'll find some other projects I'm working on on the website, twice5miles.com. I will tell you this, the name Twice Five Miles comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. Walter Parks gives us our theme song every week, and I love Walter's music. And if you would like to love more of Walter's music like I do, WalterParks.com. Lots to, lots to be found there. And Walter is a contributor on this radio station right here, WPVM-FM. Every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, he airs a show called Hymns and Hollers, and he broadcasts that show live from St. Louis. And you can listen to it right here on WPVM-FM. And I just love to tune in to Walter, and you can see him on Facebook or YouTube or right here, WPVM-FM. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave, jamesnave.com, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I'd love to hear from you. Whatever you have to say, my ears are open and my eyes are available, and I'll read it or even have a conversation with you on the phone if you'd like to set up a little chat. Uh, we're always looking for stories. If you have one, let me know. I'll be glad to bring you on the air. It is community radio, after all. It belongs to all of us. Community radio, nonprofit, low power. It's it's yours. It's mine. It's everybody's. So that's why we are able to do these kinds of, of great interviews. And today, we are having a wonderful conversation with Maya. And Maya, I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad we're talking about mask and, and identity and, and heart math and, and all the rest. I don't know if other people are thinking about the mask like I think about it. Uh, I'm sure there may be some who are. And there are a lot of people who just find the, the mask a very inconvenient thing. And I do think, however, if you are into making long-term investments – this might be a good time to start a mask collection. Ten years from now, the the mask will be a, a remnant, a historical remnant, and you'll have a little mask collection. And, and maybe you can auction it off at Christie's for a fortune if you can just get the right, right. designer to make the right mask. Well, well, we could put all the masks in like the space capsule so that in a thousand years people will go, now, what were these for? <laughs> you know, why, why were they making so many of these? Like yesterday, I sat across from somebody who had a Ruth Ginsburg mask on. Well, of course, as soon as you wear a mask like that, you have a conversation. You start talking mm -hmm. about whatever the symbol is. So there, I think there are some upsides to it. I think for people who do not like to be seen, masks are very... Uh, congruent with who they are. They don't mind wearing the mask at all. In fact, they feel it makes them feel secure. Somebody's going to write a book on these masks. And, and of course, the Biden family now has the corner on the most outfit matching masks I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Died particularly just for that outfit. It is a wonderful, fertile place of conversation talking about our masks in life. And when you travel around the world, you see all kinds of costumes. I mean, we costume ourselves all the time. We mm -hmm. call it fashion, but it's really costumes, mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful flowing robes, you know, head scarves, the way people cover themselves, the way they allow you to see some of who they are, but not all of it. Some of it's very colorful and dynamic and other, other outfits are very bland and boring. Mm -hmm. And so the mask has integrated itself into each culture because Globally, right now, we all have to deal with it, whether we like it or not, mm -hmm. one way or another. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be an interesting look-see as we examine this time and how the mask became part of our dress, the part mm -hmm. of the way we present ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, like the, deck, the necktie or, or the, the hat and, or, mm -hmm. or the, the collar that fits firmly to the chin. I've always wondered about the necktie. Totally understand the hat because it serves a purpose periodically, sun and rain, but never have understood what I call the necktie noose. I, I never understood neckties, how, how they've lasted as long as they've lasted because they don't serve too much of a purpose. I mean, I guess you can consider it decorative, but uh, I can't imagine all the men that I know that wear neckties wearing them every day to work. You know, we can say that about women. We wear so many things that are the most uncomfortable things in the world. So 
all of it's fine. I mean, you can make make of it whatever you whatever you like. And I just love the idea of of fashion and the way we express ourselves. And it's part mm -hmm. of what what we're able to do as human beings. We we don't have the feathers of the peacock, so we mm -hmm. by golly have to go about it in a million million different ways. So mm -hmm. moving from mask to mm -hmm. other things that you do, I know that you you write and you're a ghost writer. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about what a ghost writer does. I know, I think I know what a ghost writer does. You're not a ghost writing a book, but you are doing something that's unseen. And in a way, we're still talking about a mask. A ghost writer is mm -hmm. behind the scenes. And the reason I ask this is because a lot of people in the audience do write in WPVM-FM has a lot of creative people tuned in. Mm -hmm. And they're, I suspect, like me, always wondering how they can engage their creative lives in more broad and meaningful ways. So a few comments on ghostwriting and, and your own life as a writer and a filmmaker and a storyteller. That's a great question, too. If you talk about people who are therapists, essentially my belief after all these decades is that all I'm doing is one of three things and hopefully all three of them. One, I'm helping someone tell a story that they may not have been able to tell. And usually people don't come in for therapy when they're happy and they're totally integrated. They have some story that niggles them, some trauma, some abuse, something, a loss. So basically a therapist just helps a person unpack the full nature of the story that they carry. And then the idea is to hopefully reframe the story so that you can walk away from the story more empowered rather than disempowered by that story. And then the third thing is to heal from the story and to move on. I grew up feeling like I just was a person that held everyone's stories. In fact, no one ever would invite me to a dinner or a cocktail party. <laughs> because I was holding everyone's stories in town and I lived in a lot of small towns. It was like, I just knew a little too much. When I decided to semi-retire from doing full-time therapy with families and individuals and kids, story was just such a part of who I am. And I had been writing for myself for 30 years. And so I started writing screenplays about 20 years ago, because I believe the, the storytelling in movies is extraordinarily powerful. And I was really getting sad to see movies becoming less and less meaningful, poorly written, not much good storyline to really inspire, as we were talking about the heart. So I began writing and I began teaching screenplays, screenplay writing, and then it just sort of moved into teaching people to have confidence that they can write their own story. So I did writer's workshops and I did retreats. What happened is there was always a group of people who truly, it was just not their forte to write a story, to create a book out of or a screenplay. That was not their skill set. They may have been great painters or great computer programmers, but verbally it was painful. Enters the need for the ghostwriter. The ghost part is every book out there that I've ever written with and for someone else. No one will never know who I am. I'm a ghost. I'm ghosted. Their name will be on it. There are many books by very famous people that have their name on a biography or a book, and they didn't write a single solitary word in the book, but they collaborated with it and gave the information to a professional writer. So ghostwriting became my way of helping people who could not seem to get past their own barriers in writing and help them get the story out. So people will hire me, I'll interview them, we'll talk for hours and hours and we meet many times a week. And then every chapter gets sent to them, they can say, I need to add this, this isn't quite right. But I have creative license to write it in any way that I would like. So I have done that for many years, but this last few years, I moved away from ghostwriting and moved back to needing to create story for TV and film that is transformative because there has been in the past couple of decades, a decline 
in good programming and good film. So that is what led me to start the film company with a group of millennials. So as you were describing ghostwriting and how you engaged with the author, back to the term collaboration, you work closely with an author Mm -hmm. and then you take that story and collated, if you will, into an organized form that someone can read. Now, I'm thinking about your own work as a public writer. Do you find that you can transfer the skills that you have as a ghostwriter over to stories that you would like to tell on the page, not not on the screen? Can you go into your own book, or is that skill a unique skill that only the ghostwriter has can translate somebody else's story, but maybe not their own. That's sort of like saying, Maya, you teach countless people how to parachute out of an airplane. Have you ever jumped out of an airplane with a parachute yourself? (laughs) Is sort of what I hear. Well, no, it's more like you have taught countless people to parachute out of an airplane. And when you're not teaching those countless people to parachute out of the airplane, are you up there jumping out of the airplane on your own as well? My kids would love to be here for this question. It's a very big piece because essentially, if you look at the history of everything I've chosen to do in my life, even though I have enormous education and and degrees and blah, 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 I have always chosen to do some work that is of service to someone else, a therapy client, a business consultant. I'm always helping people navigate birthing something. I'm basically like a creative spiritual midwife. I'm trying to midwife their empowerment. I'm trying to midwife the success of their business, midwife their story. And I have been that for so long. And my kids say, mom, what the hell? Why aren't you publishing like 50 books with your stories? Well, they're here and they're in drawers and they're on the computer and they're in hard drives. And I can't really answer yet why I have not completely taken the two years it will take to put everything in shape and put it into the hands of the publishing world, which is basically completely crumbling and in such disarray anyway. And I'm going to go back to your first question. To write with great intention to succeed in creating a story that will get out to the masses, not just a self-publishing book that maybe only 10 people have and you give it to your family and that's all you do, but to make a difference, because that's clearly how I'm wired. If I'm not making a difference, I'm not doing it. It's just not going to be on my radar. I think what happens, and you're maybe making me confess this for the first time, Navi, it is such a solitary journey. You sit with yourself day in, day out, computer, da-da-da-da, editing, 50 episodes of editing. Maybe I'm such a collaborative pack animal that I can't seem to pull in all my energy and say, this next two years is just for me to midwife my own work. And that is really what COVID has brought to the forefront as a big question for me. It's a very interesting thing. And maybe it is a self-worth thing. Maybe I keep thinking that other people's stories are more important or other people getting their stories out that will change their life so much that I keep giving to that instead of saying, when am I going to value and create worth in the stories that I have to tell? The thing is, is that the only reason I'm really good at being a ghostwriter with people is I'm a really good writer for myself. I love my writing. I'm one of those weird people that do not get perfectionistic and start tearing it apart and thinking, oh my God, I'm not Hemingway. I love my writing. People love my writing. It works for me. It's a choice. And I keep doing the collaborative thing because it's such an intimate relationship to say, tell me your story. Now let me dress it up and take care of it for you so that when you present it to the world, you're so proud and you're so able to say, that feels like me. And I have to literally crawl into the skin of another person. And the person may say, oh, the only thing I remember is that the horse ran through the living room and jumped through the plate glass window. But I don't know any other details. And I have to write a whole chapter on the horse running through the living room and jumping through the plate glass window. I have to imagine the furniture and I have to imagine the horse and I have to create that thing that the person who has the story and has been impacted by their story uh, doesn't really know how to do. So it is a little like sex on some level. It's such an intimate thing to go straight for somebody. 
maybe I have to really consider why I'm not doing that for myself, but it's a good question now. Well, thanks for trying to answer that question. And that's one of those questions or inquiries that really doesn't have a definitive answer. It's just an, a way to explore your relationship with, with your own work. Now, I'm thinking of the horse running through the living room and blasting through this plate glass window. Right away, my mind goes to a large house. You would hardly have a horse running through one of those tiny homes on wheels. And the, the window <laughs> has to be huge. And it's a horse, not a pony. So it's a rather large proposition. Most horses at least weigh 1,500 pounds, very mm-hmm. heavy creatures. So how did the horse get into the house and why right. did it go through the plate glass window? And, you know, I have to wonder, did the horse run through a plate glass window that was on the first floor or was this just the imagination of the author and perhaps the horse blasted through the plate glass window and had wings and flew off into the horizon? Who knows? But all of that went through my mind when you started saying the horse blasted through the plate glass window. So I could see how you could have a romp kind of fun with that sort of small idea, evolving it into something rather large, back to evolution, another kind Mm -hmm. of evolution. Well, you know, it's a huge creative process. And I believe writing is very much the same as painting. The thing is, is that if you look at most most people who want to do a memoir, they want to tell a story that's true. They want to bring something up from their childhood and maybe offer it to the world. It's usually not a tale of a lot of joy and happiness. It's usually some crisis that they've had to overcome, some sort of trauma that has made them who they are. If you look at Oprah's biography, you know, her biography, she end, ends up being Oprah, but what she had to go through to get to Oprah is a huge thing. And so what I find is and maybe ghostwriting became such a focal point of the way I work, is it's the same as doing therapy. Someone's unpacking their story. You're helping them to reframe their story. And in the writing and the telling of their story, they're healing along the way because I do my psychological thing. They'll say, you know, I just don't remember how the horse got into the living room. We do guided imagery. We do all kinds of things to get them to, well, now I remember it was my uncle that blah, blah, blah. Well, they didn't get that at the beginning, but we had to do a sort of therapeutic process for them to dig down deep so that I could have enough information. So it is a very therapeutic process. And even when you're having someone who's writing a science fiction novel, not being pulled from their particular life journey, their life journey is in the whole thing. And every character that they've come up with, every planet that they're describing as a part of who they are as the writer. And so it's still just as the psychologically personal thing to write fiction as it is to write the nonfiction story. And it is fun. It's like having limitless Legos and I don't know really how I'm going to put all those pieces together. And for people listening to this conversation about writing, and if you are thinking, I'd like to write, One of the things I want to say to you out there listening, wherever you are in the world, writing is a skill-based proposition. We all can write. You've picked up a pencil or a pen and you've written something on a piece of paper. And if you want to become a writer, in my mind, the way one becomes something, you simply start the journey and continue on with the journey Mm -hmm. for as long as you are inspired to keep the journey moving. And for a lot of people, once they start to write, they begin to learn that this is is a lot of fun. And as you go along, you learn little tricks here and little tricks there. No different really than learning how to speak a different language. Or as a child, you learned immediately how to speak the language you speak. Maybe you speak three or four languages. I don't know. I speak English. I learned that as a child. And writing has the same kind of sensibility about it. So if you're trying to learn how to write or experience the journey of writing, which is a better way to say it than to learn, although you learn as you go, if you trust that you just stay on the journey and enjoy yourself and enjoy the the view, if you will, things will start to fall into place. If you do want to take it to that professional level where it's a million seller, then that's certainly within your scope. It will require, however, great amount of 
professional level work attention, such as 20 hours a week or more, developing the material over a year or two, sometimes five. In the case of some great authors, like Peter Matheson, who wrote a book called Shadow Country, it's a three, three books combined into one. He was a great literary figure. He spent 40 years writing that book. So if you spend your life working on it, it will pay out in many different ways. So I just wanted to make that comment as we're mm -hmm. talking about it, because right. people listening in may find the idea of expansion and entering it slowly and easily at the level they're at will be a way to create a sense of freedom that will carry them creatively down the path. Mm -hmm. Good point. Uh, all good points. And at. So clearly my psychological lens is really sort of like attached to me. <laughs> I can't not look through a psychological lens. I would always have people who were saying, I've just got writer's block. It's such a used phrase. I have writer's block, right? Well, most of the time when I work with people with writer's block, it was a specific fear that stopped them in their tracks, but they didn't really know how to name it. So I would work with a lot of people on what is that writer's block to you? There's something that makes you unable to approach that page, finish that chapter, complete that character development, do the second piece of editing. So writer's block is a very interesting process to get people through. The other thing that I have to say if I could write a book on telling the tales of working with writers, that is very fascinating. But I have had my fair share of some of the most absolutely brilliant writers. I really wouldn't want to ghostwrite for them. I just want to help get them into the solidness of how good they are as a writer. And I can't tell you how many of these amazing writers can never finish a book. They can't finish it. They edit it until the papers fall apart. Their perfectionism absolutely completely constricts their ability to finish. Every single one of these perfectionistic, self-judging people who are so brilliant have never been able to publish a book because of it. I find that just as much as I find any other pattern in working with writers. That's interesting. That might be an, edi an editor's dilemma rather than a writer's dilemma. These writers who have to edit and trim and work and finally never get it finished, they may not have the right editor because the relationship mm -hmm. between the editor and the writer is as intimate as the relationship between the ghost writer exactly. and the writer. Exactly. And an editor does more than find the place to put the period and the comma. The editor really digs into the revision of the book. I would love to go on and on and on about this. And this is unpacking another another subject as we right. move forward. I just noticed, however, that we're coming up on the top of the hour. And well, maybe maybe we'll use this opportunity to leave folks hanging as they do in the cinema. More well, to uh come. <laughs> I would, I would love to do a part two, and in keeping with you, because uh, I'm always doing movies, uh, one of my favorite movies around writing is called Genius. Have you seen Genius at all? Genius is with Jude Law and Colin Firth, and it is the story of one of the most famous editors, uh, Maxwell, working with Thomas Wolfe, who could not, he, he, his books were 5,000 pages, he refused to allow anyone to edit it. It was attached to every word. And it was how that relationship took him to a Pulitzer Prize and what had to happen between those two people. It was a total love affair. And you're completely correct. The editor is the most important person if the author will allow the editor to have a point of view. <laughs> Indeed, the relationship between the editor and the writer can be a very powerful proposition. So Maya, I'll take a look at that movie, Genius. I think it's on HBO. So thinking about the writer and the editor, we're back to where we started, collaboration. And it's a wonderful place to begin, and it's a wonderful place to end. And this conversation you and I have had in the last hour has been just that, an example of good collaboration, conversational collaboration. Yes, thank you very much. It's been very fun to talk with you, Nave. And it's been my pleasure as well. So once again, thanks so much, for Maya, for being on the show with us and 
we'll we'll see you soon on another show. How does that sound? That sounds great to me. My friends, that concludes our conversation with Maya Christabel. If you would like to learn more about Maya's work, her website is mayachristabel.com. M-A-Y-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-B-E-L. mayachristabel.com. M-A-Y-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-B-E-L.com. There you can read about her work and reach out to her if you feel so moved. I'm sure she would love to hear from you. As you recall, when Maya and I were talking, we touched on how people use their masks, and we talked about collaboration. And Maya talked a bit about ghostwriting. She touched on the idea of how to make a story out of the image of a large horse running through a large living room and crashing through a plate glass window. How do you do that? So we touched on that a bit. And while Maya and I were discussing this, my mind kept turning to songwriting because I've always loved the notion of writing a song and have attempted it a few times. That said, it never really got to the point where I could put it out as a well-crafted song worthy of publishing. So when I was thinking about that, I kept thinking about a song I really like, written by Walter Parks, titled New Mexico. As you may know, Walter Parks is one of our WPVM-FM contributors. He has a show on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. titled Hymns and Hollers. Walter wrote New Mexico a number of years ago when a friend of his moved from the Carolinas to New Mexico, and it's about her story of leaving one place and landing in another. So here it is, Walter Parks singing New Mexico. She don't need no man's protection She just wants to know you're there And she's pining for affection While she keeps you unaware She says she'll never give her heart She done cut off all her hair You can see through what the tough girls see In her eyes as she lay there She says New Mexico Is where she's gotta go Cause she gonna die in Carolina Got no sons or daughters, but she got healing water, and she's gotta let them flow in New Mexico. She taught you how to love her, she brought you to Now that you can love her She don't want to set you free She says her family thinks she's crazy But her lovers know the truth She does what everyone's afraid of
That was Walter Parks singing and playing his song, New Mexico. One of the reasons I like that song is because I grew up in western North Carolina around Asheville. And as a boy, I always dreamed of going west, seeing what the big country looked like. So whenever I hear Walter's song, New Mexico, I think about anybody wanting to travel west, see the big country, maybe disappear or maybe find themselves, who knows. But I, I do love the idea of songwriting and how we can express ourselves with music and with verse or songs or poetry in ways that really capture our interior sensibilities and offer them up as perhaps wisdom for people who are thinking about the same thing maybe we're thinking about. So here's to Walter Parks and his song, New Mexico. I, I, I love that. And as you know, I'm broadcasting this show from Taos, New Mexico these days. I came out here almost a year ago now, and I've been here during the pandemic. And it's been a lonely time, a productive time, a, an interesting time, certainly given me many opportunities to explore these ideas that are offered up, like the ones that Maya Christabel offered during our conversation on this broadcast. Maya and I talked about collaboration, as you might remember, and one of the things about collaboration I like, especially when it comes to the idea of radio. When you think about it, radio is a complete collaborative effort. It requires the attention of the people who make the shows, the podcast, the music, etc. And it also requires the attention of the people who listen, like you. So even though you and I don't know each other, you are listening. I'm speaking at the moment. Walter was playing. Maya was giving her ideas to us during this hour. We are together in, in a collaborative effort of exploring all kinds of ideas. So it's a joy to be able to think about collaboration from that point of view and from the point of view of the radio, which brings me around to saying that you have been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, and we are indeed airing first always on WPVM-LF Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. Here's to Walter Parks. I've mentioned him a fair amount in the last few minutes. WalterParks.com, if you would like to know more about Walter's work, he contributes our theme song, which is playing right now. Davine Dial, here's to you for all the work you do at WPVM-FM. If any of you out there would like to know more, WPVMFM.org is a great place to look. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. If you would like to know a bit more about the Twice Five Miles story, twice5miles.com is a good place to look. Twice Five Miles, as I've said before, comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. How far can you go? Twice five miles or more. And I'd like to finally say thank you ever so much for listening to this show and being part of our WPVM-FM radio community. We really do appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for listening to Twice 5 Miles Radio and all the other programs on WPVM-FM. And finally, thank you for listening and tuning in. And I do hope you tune in again next time. Until then, catch you on the turnarounds.